It's a delight to be back here again today with Ryan. And uh, Ryan and I have been working our way through the mind of the maker, which interestingly enough, I've run into a few people on uh, Twitter lately who are reading that book at the same time. And it, it seems to be that Dorothy Sayers is percolating up, percolating up into the mind space of a lot of people in this corner. So that's kind of exciting. In fact, um, Kyle, Kyle R. McNeese, who has been on the channel a couple of times, he's reading it. And so I said, oh. anytime you want to jump in with us. And so he, he might jump in with us one of these days, too. It's such a rich book, and there's so much there. And uh, one of the things that I love about this book is that because she's looking at um, what it, how creativity in general um, is a picture of God's work in the world. And so we can learn more about God's work by looking at the nature of human creativity, because we, we only know what we can experience around here, <laughs> what we mm -hmm. can see. Yeah. And so we can actually learn more about God by looking at the, the nature of human creativity. And, you know, my thing for a long time has been that there is something in the creative process itself that has to do with the, the actual mechanics, if you will, of the creation of the universe. And, uh, you know, we talked earlier about her concept of the, the idea, the energy, and the power being the creative trinity. And so I was trying to think that through in terms of my sort of picture of how things work. And in my picture, the, the elements and principles of art must inhabit that idea space. Okay. The, the space of timelessness, which would be, I guess, where you would say like all the physical laws reside in that timeless space, all mathematics and uh, physical laws reside in that timeless space. And then the energy, which is the living out or the working out of manifesting reality. Um, if the elements and principles are the, the idea and the tool set and the resources, so to speak, of what an artist uses to create a painting or to create a, a piece of music or to create a book, then the working out in time is the manifesting of that reality. And then the power um, would be, she, she likens the power to the working of the, the book or the painting or the piece of music working between the, the viewer or the listener and the author, this power moving back and forth. And so if we think about the idea and the energy being, let's say the father and the son and the power is the Holy Spirit uniting or connecting that and the power would be also that which works through the multiplicity, that which connects all of the multiplicity and, and reunites it again into the unity. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been trying to think how that would all work together with my own 
way of thinking about how art is created. Right. Well, and so like, I'm curious, I mean, you've, you've touched on it in some videos on your channel, but like, my understanding is like, <clears throat> as you learned about the principles of art, you started kind of formulating these, these ideas years ago. Mm -hmm. And then you started seeing other people talking about the same stuff, like Jordan Peterson talking about it. And like, like, how did you first arrive at like, I don't know, like what, what even got you started thinking about these things, if that makes sense? Well, I taught my first workshop on this stuff back in probably 2003, 2004. And back then I had um, come across the idea of the golden mean and the Fibonacci okay. sequence and how those things seem to bear so much resemblance to the way that um, nature works itself out in living organisms. And um, <clears throat> even in things like crystals, um, you know, order and pattern. Right. And, and how that connects up with mathematics and physical laws. And, and, and then I was thinking all the time because within the, within this idea of the elements and the principles, you're always working with, um, let's say one week I'm given the, the task of making a painting where the main focus is texture. Okay. And so I need to be thinking about texture in terms of the, the uh, making it a unified painting, unity, uh, making sure that there's harmony in the painting. So the texture could be many different colors and tones and values, dark and light and so forth. But how do I bring that together to make it unified and harmonious? So unity, harmony, contrast. How am I going to provide contrast in the texture? Maybe some of the texture is very small little textural elements and some of it is larger peaks and valleys or something like that. Right. And, uh, so unity, harmony, contrast, uh, dominance. I already have my dominance if texture is going to be my main element in the painting. Um, and then repetition, variation, gradation, and balance. I have to be looking at all of those things in terms of how do I represent those things so that I have a variety. You know, and she talks in the book about the more the diversity, mm -hmm. the more massive the di diversity, the more massive the unity. But she's not talking about diversity the way modern man talks about diversity. She's talking about how you can't do a work of art based around one single idea because it turns into propaganda. If you just have this one way of, of thinking and, and all of your characters are pushing that same idea, then you don't have any diversity amongst your characters and the whole thing just turns into a work of propaganda. It's like somebody's hitting you over the head with this idea again and again and again. So it leaves no space for you to think your way through. It leaves no space for you to add your own thoughts and process your own um, experience through what you're reading. 
Yeah, like she that that was one of the sections of the book around page like 31 that I I was highlighting a lot. And you know, she's talking about it in terms of an author writing uh fiction. But she says things like, you know, all characters from the most important to the least and from the best to the worst must express some part of the maker's mind if they are to be a living creation. But if all express that mind in an identical way, the work as a whole becomes dull, mechanical and untrue. Right. And yeah, and so yeah. I think when I when I was reading this, like I've been really struck by how this metaphor she's using of like a fiction author with the characters, it really does seem to map very, very well to God as creator of of this narrative, which is his creation and us as his characters. And yeah, this thing of, yeah, if if they all express that mind in an identical way, the work as a whole becomes dull, mechanical, and untrue. And, and I'm still struggling to put words to it, but it's kind of like we talked about last time. There's something about that, that very strict rules-focused mentality that, that just gives me the heebie-jeebies. And it strikes me as, yeah, this is just untrue. This is just uncompelling, you know? When I'm when I'm talking with someone, you know, like a, a a Christian or engaging with some kind of church or something that like seems very focused on the rules and expressing things in a very, uh, I, I I don't know, like from one perspective in a very particular way with a very particular language, it seems to be kind of what she's talking about. It, it doesn't it doesn't end up expressing the the totality of the thing very well. And so you get this, just this very, it's very unified in a way, but not in a, in a brittle way, mm-hmm. you know, in a very hollow, uncompelling way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, I don't know. I, I'm still struggling to put words to any of that, but that kind of thing has been on my mind a lot. Yeah. So, um, there's several places that she talks in the book about things that are kind of peripheral to that and yet um, very meaningfully connected to that idea. Let me see if I can find one of those. Um, well, okay, here's, here's a connection that I ran into that required me to show a very short video okay. for two minutes. Um, And uh, let's see this video right here. And I'm hoping that the sound will come on. Um, so I was kind of helped in my reflections by this distinction that uh, uh, philosopher Charles Taylor makes, right, between two models of the self, right? So he talks about something called the porous self, which he associates with, you know, pre-modern cultures, right? So where people didn't sort of draw this hard line between themselves and the world outside, but saw the boundary as porous. And so things that happen in the world uh, essentially um, can be experienced in this, in this sort of direct way. There isn't like a, a, a wall, so to speak. Um, and so this, he says, goes along with um, experiencing the world in an enchanted way, right? So that we, we see we're kind of porous to to the spirits. We're porous to cosmic forces. We're porous to God, um, and that in this mode, you know, along with that is actually a kind of vulnerability, right? So you have 
people who are sort of feel vulnerable to spiritual forces. Um, and he, so one of the things that Taylor's interested in is like what it means for us to be modern people, right? And he says that one of the hallmarks of modernity is a kind of shift from this idea of the poorest self where we are kind of feel ourselves as being connected to and vulnerable to that which is outside of us to what he calls the buffered self. So when he speaks of the buffered self, he's sort of talking about a model of the self in which um, we have like complete control over the meanings we assign to the world. So we can kind of stand back, observe things and decide what they mean. And we have this sort of buffer then that, that um, insulates us from what happens to us. Um, and so not only do we um, have sort of control over, um, over what we, the meanings we assign to things in the world, but he says that people, you know, see in this, see this as liberative because it gives them freedom. Like I can assign whatever meanings I want. I can kind of remake myself as I like. And um, I think of Richard Rorty in connection with this because, you know, he's the one who sort of celebrated our kind of Nietzschean uh, potential to recreate ourselves. Um, I'm going to stop there, but, but um, what he said there about the buffered self and the porous self, I thought was so interesting because this buffered self, the, the, the ability to make our own control over the meanings. I think that's what happens in a rule-oriented church is that it gives you control over your life. There's this set of rules that I have to follow. It's way easier than having to live a life that depends on the leading of the spirit because I know exactly what to do. I've got this set of rules. I just followed these rules. Now, I might not be able to follow the rules, but I know what to do, and so I know how even to... Um, punish myself when I don't follow the rules. Right. So it's, it's very orderly. It's very strict. And it's very yeah. much easier than living a life under the aegis of the spirit. But the poorest self is the self that is open to um, open to the spirit, open to suffering, open to pain. Um, and the way I think about this in terms of art is when I, if I'm painting a figure in a in a work, it would be easy to take a, a photograph of a figure and blow it up and cut it out and paste it on. But that would be the that would be the buffered self. That would be the me wrapped in plastic wrap in the world. Nothing touching me. I'm not connected to anything. I can be completely insulated, divided away from the work. And you see paintings sometimes like that. This is why posters don't give the same emotional substance as, mm -hmm. as a, a really beautiful figurative work because there's a, a hard line around the outside of the figure and right. there's no connection. But... But when the background and the foreground play with each other, and when the, the edges of the figure are porous in some areas, and when the shadows of one figure melt into the shadows of another figure, and you see the connections between people, or the, see the connections between objects, either through a path of light or a path of shadow in the painting, then you have a true connectivity that lives out a larger story. And Anyway, that was the thing that came up for me. Well, I'm, I'm, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And it's interesting, like, I, the, honestly, I'm glad you showed me that clip because that's 
pretty helpful in, you know, like I, I think of, um, I've tried to slog my way through maps of meaning by Jordan Peterson. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's a challenge. It, it, it works my whole brain muscles. And, um, if I'm understanding him right, part of what he's getting at, at least in one section of the book, is that like, you know, you have your you have your known world, right? And then you have the outside, the chaos, right? And there's different ways you can interact with that, right? You could you could be the village that just as soon as an outsider comes in, you just slaughter them. Nothing from the outside is allowed in, no, no interaction with the chaos. It's just you have your known, and that's all it is, and everything else is. And that seems very representative of the kinds of churches or the kinds of cultures I'm talking about. Very, very non-porous, very, we do not interact with everything because we have it figured out. We have our system, we have our language, we have our everything, and outsiders are unwelcome, period, right? And then, you know, you've got kind of the opposite extreme where if if you're too porous, everything just comes in and the center doesn't hold and everything just sort of disintegrates and there's no uh, there's no unity, there's no structure, because it's all just overtaken, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Peterson would maybe argue that's kind of what's happening to us culturally right now, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the 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 proper way, let's say, to, to to interact with the chaos is yeah, to be somewhat porous, not too porous, but not totally closed off. But mm-hmm. yeah, interact with the chaos. Let let some of it come in deal with it, integrate it somehow or dispel it if needed or whatever. I don't know. I don't know the language for it, but like that seems like a very healthy way to, to engage with the unknown. And it seems like that's kind of what's necessary here with this whole, yeah, being porous, seeing the world in an enchanted way where things can be mysterious, things can come in and affect you. Right. You know, Sayers in this, in, in the mind of the maker talks about this in terms of like, there is a sense in which the characters like have their own will, right? Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not alive in, in, in the sense that the author is alive, but like if, if the author creates these characters with certain characteristics and then doesn't uh, submit i don't yeah i don't know how to put it doesn't doesn't follow those characteristics properly you end up trying to force the character into a situation that doesn't really feel congruent and then it all kind of falls apart and so there is a sense in which the character must be respected as its own entity with its own agency that is interacting with the story in some real way and and so there's almost this sort of back and forth dialogue between author and creation Right. And only if that back and forth dialogue is really honored, it seems to be something like what Sayers is saying. Only if it's honored, do you end up with a coherent work that is that that makes sense and is beautiful. But if you don't honor it, then you end up with something that just doesn't doesn't feel quite right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that that was one of the things that I wrote down a quote from. Um... So, so here's one quote that I think fits with that, although the, the, it's not exactly the one I'm thinking of, but the other one might come up to me. <clears throat> okay. 
she says the um, the components of the material world are fixed and those of the world of imagination increase. Now, to me, that's such a brilliant, um, very compressed thought that's just filled with so much riches. The components of the material world are fixed. Those of the world of imagination increase. I mean, we see that in economics all the time. We live in a world of scarcity and yet the world of imagination and economics can create, you know, a completely new idea that creates new opportunities for people all over the planet. iPhone, for example, you know, <laughs> think of how many people are employed now making iPhones. Not necessarily that iPhones are a good thing, but I mean, the idea sure. is that the world sure. of the imagination can increase even when the, the material world is fixed. Then she goes on to say, that being so, how can we know that the idea itself has any real existence apart from the energy? So we can see the energy working its way out in the world, but how do you know that the idea actually exists and it's not just the energy? Very strangely, we see this by the fact that the energy itself is conscious of referring all of its acts to an existing and complete whole. In other words, Every choice of an episode, every word, every stroke, if I'm painting a painting of color or texture or whatever, is made to conform to a pattern of the entire book or work that exists in the idea that is already existing. Otherwise, you wouldn't say to yourself, that's the wrong color. Wrong. How? How do you know it's wrong? Because in the mind, there's an idea of what it's supposed to look like or to say that's the wrong word. Well, the only way you can know it's the wrong word is that you have in your mind a coherent idea of how the work is supposed to progress and how that character is supposed to be revealed. So and she goes on later in the book to talk about this, which I think is so compelling when she's talking about the nature of evil, that, and it's a huge idea. So, I mean, that whole chapter is a huge right. idea, but, but basically it's that um, because good exists, necessarily non-good exists, but it only exists because good exists. Just as in, because Hamlet, because the work of Hamlet exists, there is also a not Hamlet. Everything that's not Hamlet also exists, but you would never, it wouldn't have any meaning whatsoever if Hamlet didn't exist. The not Hamlet has no meaning without Hamlet. And uh, <clears throat> so this idea that you could choose the wrong word wrong in the sense that it doesn't relate back to the original idea that's what makes it the wrong word there are a lot of other words you could choose there yeah but there's only one perfect word for that spot right he's talking about the right and the wrong word she's not talking about a rule it's mm -hmm. not like when you have this structure or this idea you always use this word she's talking about this sort of there's just something that just fits perfectly for that space. Mm -hmm. There's something that just belongs there and it just does, yeah. right? And that, you know, I mean, she she gives an example in a different spot about like, 
like she used the word dynamite um, as a description of, you know, something explosive or whatever. And this scientist came up to her and was like, well, we have explosives that are a lot stronger than dynamite now, right? And it's like, you know, she kind of describes like, then this is the whole point, right? Because yes, that t- in a technical sense, that is true. But also dynamite is the word that has all the cultural associations and all the linguistic associations with the Greek. And it 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 is the right word, even though, yes, in a technical sense, we have things that are stronger than dynamite, but stronger in a, in a, in a literal technical sense, not stronger in effect or linguistically or in, in the power of the word. Right. And, and, and I think this, this seems to be what really bothers me sometimes about, um, yeah, the kind of theology or, or whatever that is so fixated on trying to be technically correct as if that's the only value. Whereas, I don't know how to put it. So I feel like how people are going to hear me is like, well, you know, you don't care about truth. It's like, that's not what I'm saying, but I don't know. So the example that pops in my head is like, um, Abram in Genesis talking with God about Sodom, you know, and, and God says, I'm going down to Sodom to see if, you know, the reports that have come to me are true. And then you have this sort of dialogue where it seems like, okay, Abram is maybe changing God's mind about what he's going to do. And there's all kinds of, that's a really thorny question, obviously. I don't care to actually get into that. But my, my only point is, if if your only value is trying to be super technically correct in, in this abstract philosophical way, then you totally miss the narrative and the power of that story, which is God chooses to engage with his creation in such a way to where maybe, you know, he, like, there's something really powerful there. You know what I mean? But if you're not allowing it to be what it is, then you, then you lose the power. You just, you just squeeze it of all its meaning and all its raw power and intrigue. And it just becomes this, well, obviously God did not change his mind because God is not changeable. And it's like, okay, yeah, but uh, I don't know. It just feels to me like it's missing the point in some deep way. Does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because the minute that you try to nail it down and say, well, this is exactly what happened there, then you've lost whatever other meanings it might have had. I mean, that that narrative, that story, that relationship between God and Abraham has an untold number of deep meanings to it that mm-hmm. that can unfold throughout the time of one believer's interaction with that passage over their entire life and through all the experiences that they have as they go back to that passage every time it's richer and newer so to say oh no it can only mean this one thing then you're throwing out all the rest of it you know Mm -hmm. um so let's let's take it and think about that the dynamite example and think about it in terms of choosing the right color for um for a stroke, the right color or the right texture for a stroke. Because you might say, you know, this is the one that fits right here. Why does it fit there? 
Well, it doesn't fit there for any one reason. It fits there because it is the color that will unify. It is the color that will bring harmony. It is the color that will um, allow for the right gradation and the right variation. And it's the color that's going to provide the right rhythm of colors moving through the whole passage. And it's the color that's going to provide the right rhythm and the right balance. So it, it, that color is representing all of the principles working together on some sort of sliding scale system so that it's for that moment in that place, it's the right color. That color might also be right in a lot of other places at other times. And there might be, you know, it's, it's a perfect, the, all the colors that are wrong for that space right now could be right for other spaces. But in this moment, thinking about all of those principles, that is the right color for that space. Mm-hmm. So when I think about something in the scripture, it's, it's not that there's no structure, but it's that the structure is, is this kind of flexible matrix of truth, many different aspects of truth that are all fitting together at each moment of time and at each moment in space. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm probably not making any sense at this point. No, I, I think you are. I mean, I, and that's how you can get something like, I don't know. I mean, the the Apostle Paul being so bold as to say that, you know, there there are things that are good for some people and not others, depending on the circumstance, right? And that there is no hard and fast rule for that. Sometimes eating meat may be the right thing. It may be the wrong thing. And, and, and there's, there's factors and, and, and it, it depends on all these things. And, yeah, it's not a rule. You can't just say it's always wrong or it's always right or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seems like so many things work that way, you know, and and as it relates to like the meaning of things, I mean, Sayers gives the example of it, we're not even in control of the meanings of our words necessarily. Like when Solomon was writing, you know, the 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 Song of Songs, you know, he wasn't thinking of like oh someday there is going to be a messiah and the messiah's relationship with creation will be such and such and therefore i should write an allegory like he wasn't thinking that you know he didn't have that meaning in mind at the time i would argue and i think that's a reasonable argument but then fast forward to today and we impose that meaning on it and that's not arbitrary like that really is I think a true meaning of that text, but that wasn't in his mind at the time. And it's in our mind. And it's, there's this interplay between like, I mean, there's just so much stuff in this, and the scripture is full of that stuff. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I remember being being struck by um, uh, one of the, one of the Greek fathers talks about the burning bush as a symbol of the two natures of Christ. You know, there's the, there's the physical bush, which is like the humanity. And then there's this fire that's that's like the divinity. And and in some strange way, the divinity is 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 surrounding and and with 
the humanity, but it's not consuming it. It's not destroying it. Right. It's, it's, they're, they're together. And it's like, that where does that meaning in the text come from you know assuming that's a correct interpretation well it comes from the reality of christ and who he is but but that would not have been understood probably i guess by whoever was writing exodus you know and um anyway i mean I, that's a beautiful it, example i've never heard that um particular idea but it it seems completely coherent right Right, because how can the finite hold the infinite? And yet, there we have a picture. Right, we're given a right. picture there of how the finite holds the infinite and is not destroyed by it. That that's a terrific. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you who that was. I uh -huh. that was when I was going to you know Orthodox catechesis. They uh -huh. shared that with me. Well, speaking of Orthodox. Um, there's this little book on the incarnation by St. Athanasius. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's quite an amazing book, but I had just picked it up again today. Just randomly thinking there's probably something in here that connects to what we're doing. So um, here's one of these things that I had never thought about before. And I don't know that anybody had ever thought about before, before Athanasius. And I don't think it, I don't think it's a part of the text of the word, and yet it, it it's just so rich and deep, and it just so makes sense. So, um, death came to his body, therefore not from himself, but from enemy action, in order that the Savior might utterly abolish death in whatever form they offered it to him. Now, here's here's the pertinent part: a generous wrestler virile and strong does not himself choose his antagonists unless he should be thought that of some of them he is afraid. Rather, he lets the spectators choose them and that all the more if these are hostile so that he may overthrow whomsoever they match against him and thus vindicate his superior strength. I mean, I've even seen that scene like in, uh, I think Spider-Man, there's a scene like that where Spider-Man is trying to, build his strength and so he goes into one of these wrestling you know dark areas of town and you just have to take whoever they they throw at you to fight against you right because if you're if you're not willing to fight them then you're saying i'm afraid of them so rather he lets the spectators choose them right so even so it was with christ he the life of all our lord and savior did not arrange the manner of his own death lest he should seem to be afraid of some other kind. No, he accepted and bore upon the cross a death inflicted by others, and those others his special enemies, a death which to them was supremely terrible and by no means to be faced. And he did this, that in order by destroying even this death, he might himself be believed to be the life and the power of death be recognized as finally annulled. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred for the deaths which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. And um, a little later, there's an, another example that's very similar to that. 
And, and what I wrote down at the bottom of the page was that he filled or fulfilled all the frames that were given to him by the spectators. You know how Jonathan is always saying, um, like Mary framed for him the wedding at Cana when she said, um, you know, we're out of, they're out of wine. That right. provided a frame. And then he filled that frame. He provided mm. the wine in, you know, out of the water. And that, that when people would ask a question and then he responds to that question, he's filling that frame with truth. So the frame is provided. Here's the death that we demand of you. And he fills that frame with his glory. Um, I, I just, but that's the kind of thing that it's not that evident when you're reading the text, but inside that text are all these possibilities, all this, um, the treasures hidden inside the text that aren't obvious to us, right? That come mm -hmm. out. It, it's very like, uh, when she talks about the idea, the energy, and the power, once the energy has made manifest the work, then the power is the um, working out of the meaning and the, the beauty and the power of it amongst the multiplicity of those who are interacting with the work and then between those who are interacting with the work and the author himself. Right. So, um, yeah. And that, I, that has been on my mind as I've been reading this book, even in terms of just a conversation, like the conversation we're having right now, there is some sense in which like, you know, my sentence or my paragraph right here is like idea being made manifest or incarnated through my word right and it is going out and doing its its activity right mm -hmm. and then it 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 goes up into other people right it, it ascends back to the father right back to the idea in other people's minds and in that way it propagates Right. And so there's this sort of incarnation of the word, this sort of death and resurrection as it spreads. Right. And and then an ascension. And then the power is the 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 working out of that in, you know, other people's minds. And, and so the, the viewers here or just between me and you. And, and so it's almost like every sentence is is the whole cycle of 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 incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension. And then the sending of the power, the sending of the spirit. It's like we're we're performing that over and over and over. Every word, every sentence, every painting you do, every I mean, everything we do is like that mm -hmm. pattern, right? And I, and I find that just just super fascinating. In that, like, you know, I I I love to talk just with my you know just friends and people about like the world is fractal. You know, I don't, I don't know if people even know what I'm trying to say by that, but it's like this, it's like Christ is the pattern of all things. And we, we are enacting that pattern in, in big ways and small ways, moment by moment and throughout 
years of our lives. And it's just super interesting, right? It's deeply coherent to me. Yeah. I mean, what you just said there about every idea has to go through this pattern. And that's so true because you have the idea in your head that you want to say, but the idea is bigger than what you can say because right. you can't even know how to say the idea that's in your head. It's too big, right? right. So it has to be compressed, has to be compressed into something that you can at least try to get out there. And then as you're compressing that, and then you're starting to struggle for the right words, the words that maybe make sense to you that you think might make sense to the other person. So you're, you're not in every conversation, you're going to say it in a different way because you're aware of the person that you're talking to. And here we're kind of aware of the audience. And so we're kind of aware of how other people might take things, even if we're trying to be completely transparent and open and authentic, right. you know, we're still, yeah. we're still monitoring a little bit as we speak. And so, so it's going through that lens. All of it is going through that lens before it can come out the other side and enter into your mind and enter into the minds of the listeners. And then for them, it also has to go back up into their idea and be incorporated with their ideas and then their idea is too big to get you know right. so it keeps growing and uh yeah so yeah and, and i love seeing that play out in i mean yeah i mean in some sense that's our little project here it's like you and i sat down and talked about like well there's there's this thing we're both interested in and let's just start talking about it and seeing if we can get at it from different angles or whatever and the the same thing is happening in you know this little corner of the internet with a bunch of people doing that together and it's like there is something that kind of emerges out of this in some manner that is bigger than just the you know it's it's not just the sum of the parts it's something grander than that in some real sense um well, you were talking about how the fractal nature of things. I, I've got to show you this thing that um, Dr. Michael Levin put on Twitter the other day. He's just written a new paper. And um, in this paper, he's talking about. Um, he's talking about. The all these processes tiers of biological cognition, how cognition goes all the way down from the human mind all the way down to probably the cell level and even below. Um, but then he shows this picture of the, you see this on the bottom half of the page here? Yeah. Genome going down into what he calls the bow tie node. <laughs> I wanted right. to, I wanted to put back on on uh, Twitter and say, you know, they call that the cruciform for a reason, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the, the genome goes through this process out into the anatomical form and function. Anatomical form and function is what he's really interested in. And he uses this word of, of um, morphogenesis. There's a morpho space. There's a space in which things form up and, uh, the genome only has part of the responsibility for that. So over here on the right, you see it says the micro level hardware specifications, that's the genome. Right. And then the physiological computations are this part here in the middle. And then behavior in problem spaces is this anatomical form and function. 
So in problem spaces, it turns out that cells are very, very adaptable. They can figure out how to avoid obstacles and they can figure out how to um, repair mistakes and they can figure out how to build the right thing, even if the wrong thing has been put in the wrong place. So in this, in the problem spaces, anatomical form and function, there's a lot of adaptability with life. But in this center part, there's this bow tie node. So the gene regulatory network, all this stuff has to go through this bottleneck right here to come out into the gene regulatory network. And the bioelectric circuit has to go through this bottleneck and then come out the other side. And the tension comes out the other side into this biomechanical network. So this cruciform is everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. And it's everywhere in art. It it is one of the most recognizable um, design principles in art. There are seven i think there are seven typical design designs in art s-h-u-t-l s-c-h-u-t-l so there's the s shape and the c shape and the h shape and the u shape and the t shape and the l shape but a lot of works have those shapes to them but more than any is the cruciform shape and and there's a reason for that because that's what people see wherever they look so it makes sense for art to represent that that's that's very interesting because yeah i mean what, what as soon as you showed that image yeah that popped in my head the the cross or the the tree you know where mm-hmm. This this reminds me of what Matthew Pajot is doing in the language of creation. You know, it's like you've got the the hierarchy that goes towards heaven, the hierarchy that goes towards earth, and they meet in this 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 crux in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and I, th- I think years ago I would have been kind of cynical and said, "Well, that's just a metaphor that we apply to things because it makes sense to us because whatever." And it's like <laughs> it doesn't seem to be. Because like you say, it just kind of pops up everywhere. Things things meet at this point of transformation. There's also a death and a change, right? I mean, look at up here in the upper right-hand corner, right? There's the the encoder, the bottleneck, and the decoder. Here's the encoding process, which is the basically getting ready for birth. And then there's the bottleneck, which is the birth process. And then on the other side, out comes the decoding process, which is the, which is the, the new birth. And um, if you just think about um, the development of a new human being, all of the DNA of history is filtered down into my egg. And all of the DNA in history is filtered down into my husband's sperm. And then those two unite in this bottleneck. And then out of that comes a new life that then once again carries all of the DNA of history. Hmm. And and we know that because they have found that by looking at people's DNA, they can trace it all the way back to the mitochondrial Eve and the 
something something atom even i mean the scientists talk about it that way that there was an eve and there was an atom but they don't put them in the same time or place they're hundreds of thousands apart or something like that i don't know but the point is that the dna we all carry all the dna from all history which is just like completely Mm mind-blowing you know um yes my dna is different than your dna but somehow in that dna it traces back to right the very beginning of the history of dna and uh in in our development from a, a zygote into a human being goes through all the de- developmental levels that all beings have ever gone through from the beginning until now so there is a bottleneck and in that bottleneck is always it always looks like that and in the stories in the scripture it looks like that joseph's life is a perfect example of that Mm -hmm. and for most of time that bottleneck has looked like the suffering of the cross right right and even even outside i mean Like I, I, I'm, I'm struck by, I've never read it, but I know Rene Ganaw has a book called the symbolism of the cross where he's, I don't think he was even a Christian at this point when he, when he wrote the book, he kind of moved on to Hinduism or something, but he's still making the point that yes, this, this pattern is, is somehow baked into the universe and we experience it everywhere, no matter what, no matter our, our, our traditions or or whatever like this is not just an arbitrary thing this really is like how we experience the world how 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 the world lays itself out in Paget's terms it's like yeah i mean every change is death and resurrection right It, it it focuses down to this point of transformation and become something else. And that transformation is necessarily a kind of suffering because it's an unbecoming, right? And, you know, Christ explicitly talks about this, you know, if, if how, how does he put it? It's like, if a seed, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's the same mm-hmm. thing, right? It's like the cross, the, the crucifix, that point of transformation is death and it is inevitable. And if it doesn't happen, nothing Nothing grows or expands or propagates, right? Yep. You know, I don't. I don't know if this is related, but a, a quote I wrote down from Dorothy Sayers was: "Consequences cannot be separated from their causes without a loss of power." We may ask ourselves how much power would be left in the story of the crucifixion as a story if Christ had just come down from the cross. That would have been an irrelevant miracle, whereas the story of the resurrection is relevant, leaving the consequences of the action and the character still in logical connection with their causes. It is, in fact, an outstanding example of the development we have already considered, the leading of the story back by a new and more powerful way of grace to the issue demanded by the way of judgment, so that the law of nature is not destroyed but fulfilled. That's how she ended that chapter. And if I'm understanding her right, she's kind of saying that, like, at that point in the book, she's talking about how arbitrary miracles would not be good because it would not, it kind of like a deus ex machina or whatever in a story. If you just kind of 
bring a character out of nowhere to solve the problem, then it it breaks the logical flow of the story. It breaks the coherence. It, it pulls all the power away. It's just like, ugh, what was that? It leaves the reader feeling just kind of gross and sad and like unsatisfied, you know? And and Christ just coming off the cross and, and not going through the crucifix and the death and resurrection would have been the same thing, right? But Christ going through that death and resurrection is what followed the, the, the pattern of the story in the deepest possible way, leading to the greatest possible, like the most compelling possible story, right? And I, and I don't think I'm saying that as an arbitrary thing. I'm not just saying I happen to be a Christian and I happen to find this the most compelling story. It's like, I think it is literally the most compelling possible story, right? The, the highest, the highest being descended from the highest down to the lowest in total death, total, total annihilation for the sake of bringing it all back up to the top, right? For the, for the sake of bringing it all together. It's like, you can't, you can't have you know, you can't add to that story in some real sense. You know what I mean? Like that is the story of stories and, and it's not arbitrary. It's beautiful. It's, it's. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, once you say that, there's not much more to say, <laughs> but um but I was thinking about this in terms of um, just the the modern mindset that wants to say that good and evil don't exist, that all things are just morally neutral or are a social construction or something like that. But you really can't have a world without a value scale it's impossible in art you can't have a painting without a value scale if you do you have a painting that's either all black or all white but even then you still have a value scale because you're still saying it's all black that's still a value scale the most interesting paintings have a value pattern to them where there's a dominance of one value or the other value, and then just a small amount of, of the opposite. But that that's neither here nor there. But the point is that if something is not better than something else, then there's no world. There's, there's certainly no life. If at some point there's not some decision that to live would be better than not to live, then there would not be any um genesis of life in the world because whatever it is that caused life to come into being even if it just came by completely naturalistic causes whatever that first life is has to have within it a desire to live otherwise it wouldn't continue to live because that's the desire to live is what keeps it living because there's it always has to be pushing against entropy in order to stay alive. And it takes effort. And that effort has to be based on some sort of motivation that A is better than B. Being warm is better than being cold. Being 
being satisfied is better than being hungry. Um, getting here is better than being there. So right. um, I was watching a video that was on Michael Levin's channel today where this young woman is talking about her doctorate, which she did on the uh, collective work of ants. And particularly um, their dynamical ability to communicate direction and especially when they're carrying large loads. So when an ant comes across a dead cricket, the ant knows it can't get that cricket back to the, to the ant home or nest or whatever it is by itself. So it goes back, it gathers up some other ants, brings them over, and then they all work together to get that cricket back. Well, in order for that to work, they have to somehow be able to coordinate their actions so that you know, some aren't pulling to the left while others are pulling to the right. They all need to be pulling together to get this thing going. When they meet an obstacle, they have to know how to get around that obstacle. And the main gift or the main um, skill that they have is knowing where home is. Mm. Okay. So they, they're always heading towards home, but if they run into an obstacle, they, they might need to go left or right to get around that obstacle. But once they, once the obstacle begins to dissipate, they can head towards home again. And then maybe they have to turn right again in order to get on the other side of the obstacle before they can head home again, but they always know they're heading home. Right. Because home is better. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. so there's something that's better than something else. And um, that in itself, I think, is one of the greatest explanations for, for why there is evil in the world, because it's just not, it's not the good. <laughs> you know, better is the way home. Not better is the way away from home. Better is to be integrated and to be a whole unit not better is to be torn apart. Um, so we're always trying to work for something that is better, unless we're some sort of an anti entity trying to tear things apart. Right. But without that value scale, there wouldn't be any world. Nothing would function. And I mean, that that's a fractal too, all the way down. It's a fractal right. all the way down to the atomic level. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. The, like gravity, right? It's like things wouldn't even exist if things weren't being held together. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I you, you talked last time about, I don't know, this kind of like Russian doll nested thing going on where the edge of one thing is, is inside other things. And um. <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm going with this or why I'm bringing this up, but it's like, I, I just, I've been thinking about that. Like the gravity that's, that's holding like whatever, an object together. Yeah. There's, there's scales of this all the way up and all the way down. And it's, it's just baffling to me. Um, and I, I guess, I guess what I'm thinking about is like, ultimately like, What is, I don't know, I, it might be dumb to ask questions like this, but like, what is the ultimate 
goal or vision or where is this all headed? Like I know in, in some very abstract sense, it's like Christ is bringing all things together and the kingdom is coming and that's a thing. But like, I don't feel like I've ever captured a really good vision of what that actually is, you know? And I think in a lot of Christian culture, I think we, we have struggled with that because it's like, well, you know, Christ's whole work was to enable us to, because we couldn't follow the rules, he did some stuff and whatever. Now that doesn't matter. It's like, okay, but like, where's the vision for, like, that doesn't really, I don't know, get at the the heart of the thing, I feel like, you know what I mean? And so it's like, what actually then is the vision, you know? It's not just, uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very incomplete picture. <laughs> um, and it, it, especially when you say it that way, it's just ludicrous. Yeah, I, I'm, I might not be characterizing it fairly, you know, but that, yeah. that is kind of what was in my head as a kid. Like, okay, well, the, the good news is that Christ, that I didn't obey the rules and Christ took care of that problem. Like, okay. I don't know. Again, I feel like I'm going to get myself into trouble talking this way, but it's like, that just, that is, that, that's the death. What about the resurrection? Right? Like if, if there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. What is the, what is the new life? What, where, where is this headed? What, what does it mean to be brought together? What does that look like? Um, I don't know. That's just that. That's what's on my mind a lot these days, and I wanna, I wanna have a compelling vision of that. And I find it intriguing that, you know, like we talked last time about C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. It's like he's he's trying to kind of maybe get at that in a sense. Like, well, so I've been doing this liturgy of the hours, okay. something that Word on Fire puts out every month. <clears throat> And this is this is for the month of uh, March. So <clears throat> you read through this. There's a, there's passage to read through in the morning and and one in the evening and then one for night time. So there would be three three times during the day. I typically only do it in the morning, um, just because I haven't disciplined myself yet to do it in the evening. It takes sure. about it takes about a half an hour to to read through it because it goes through several passages of scripture and some prayers and it's just the more that I have done it the more beautiful it becomes. At first it was kind of like half an hour, <laughs> but now it's like oh is that all there is now you know because mm. I I feel like I want more. Right. So um but one of the interesting things about it is that. There are two things that are common to every single day. One of them is the Lord's Prayer, both in English and in Latin. And the other thing is this passage from Zechariah, the song of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. Every day we read through that same passage. And then the first 10 or 12 days that I was doing this, I towards the end of that time, I'm like, you know, maybe I can just skip that one. I've read it 12 times now. But I kept reading it. And now every time I read it, it's like it's just new every single time I read it. But there's one part of it that really stands out to me. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free 
And uh, another place that says, um, this was the oath he swore to our father Abraham to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear. He has set us free to worship him without fear. Mm -hmm. I think that is, that's the story. Um, we were trapped by the enemy and he gave himself as a ransom to set us free. But the that freedom has a purpose and that freedom is to worship him. That worship is not for him as much as it is that worship changes me. Worship mm -hmm. transforms me, right? But then to worship without fear has so many levels of meaning. To, um, to live without fear, to contemplate without fear, to love without fear, to speak without fear, um, to be unveiled to look with unveiled faces you know from glory to glory there, there's all of that stuff in the word about what that really means to be to be a display case for christ to be a mirror of his glory in the world um because every one of our lives is a is a reflection of of the gift that he has given to each one of us so that we can represent that to others so that this glory can just continue to grow, you know, so that more and more people can be blessed by his life. And if that is what the story is, then does it matter if the story comes to an end? I mean, does it matter if there's an end game? I think, I think it's a modern way of thinking that there has to be an end game. You know, right. um, when I used to teach business, I was a business consultant teaching uh, Japanese business people how to do presentations and offer feedback that would be uh, effective in the American business environment. Well, when you're doing a presentation, you always want to get to the bottom line first. You know, there's got to be a bottom line. <laughs> Mm -hmm. give them the bottom line first tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them you know there's all these frameworks that we have but that's a very modernist way of thinking rather than just we are living out the most beautiful story that there is and can't we just live that story with joy and mm -hmm. um as a reflection of his glory that's interesting because yeah, that is you're you're right. That is kind of my gut instinct to yeah funnel this all to a main point and ending. But it's like really, it should be an unfolding, an eternal unfolding, right? Yeah. Have you ever listened to any David Bohm? I've not. B O H M. He was a physicist around the middle of the twentieth century. He got into a lot of trouble in the physics world. Um, he, 
he wrote some things that were really well received. And then all of a sudden he sort of stepped over a line. But one of his ideas was this idea of the implicate order. And the idea of the implicate order is something like that, where everything in the beginning was all folded up into this little dot. And then everything since then has been this unfolding so it's just like continually opening up and unfolding, almost like uh, you can imagine like a, a rose blooming. You know, you, you think of the the seed, then the rose bush growing and then the, the rose buds and then each bud opens up and gets more and more and more beautiful as it. So anyway, it's this idea of this unfolding all the time. And uh, so when you said that, that made me think about David Bohm. I don't know whether he was right about the physics or not, but um, sure, yeah. But he had a he had a lot of very compelling conversations with some Indian guy whose name escapes me right now. He was very famous. I don't know if he was. A, I, I'm going to get the terminology wrong. He was either a guru sure. or a swami or one of those guys that he had yeah. a lot of conversations with and. Thousands of people used to come and listen to the two of them talk. Interesting. Because he was talking from the physics side and, and the other guy was talking from a spiritual vantage point. And uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, there are really only two stories that are coherent. One is the... Christian story and the other, I think he said Hindu. Hmm. I think it was Hindu. It was one of the Indian religions. What's the other religion in India? Um, A big one. Buddhism or Vedanta, maybe. Okay. So there are these two compelling visions, and then. C.S. Lewis said that he felt that Christianity was was the one that made the most sense because of this idea of it being, you know, like Jonathan always says, the limit of the story. It's the limit, right? It's the greatest narrative that you can imagine. Um, one yeah, of the it makes sense to me. Go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I mean, Sayers touches on, I, I didn't write down the quote, so I might butcher this a bit, but she talks about how like the the fullness of Hamlet is understood with all the different ways people are interpreting it and playing the characters and that, you know, your, your, your understanding of Hamlet grows the more you see people doing good interpretations of Hamlet, right? Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, it's like, I don't know why that connected with in my head with what you're just talking about, but like, yeah, there's a sense in which maybe there is this eternal growing of our understanding of the glory of God in terms of our particular manifestations of, yeah, how he's glorified in our experiences and our perspectives and all this stuff. I mean, the body of Christ, right? It's, it, it's, we, we build up 
and you know, <laughs> there's, there's unity in our diversity or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, there, there's something really, really real about that. and really good about that. Well, see, I think this is one of the things that protects this way of thinking from falling over into postmodernism, because the idea right. that, that a word can have a different meaning here or there, or wherever you want to have it, you know, all that kind of stuff can easily fall over into postmodernism. Right. But the idea that um, for whatever reason, God has allowed the story to become richer as it lives through every individual puts a very powerful meaning on what it means to be an individual. Now, I know there are people in our corner of the internet that bristle at that word individual. But I think it's one of the most important aspects of our faith. And that Mm -hmm. is that rather than being a drop of water that gets reunited with the river, at which point the drop of water would no longer exist. Our belief is that when we are reunited with Christ at, at the end of our life, that we are still who we are only, mm-hmm. only perfected, only, you know, uh, made incorruptible. And, uh, What that says to me is that every one of us has this, because we're human, it's a finite capacity, but it's a a very large capacity for creativity in the sense that all of my experiences that have made me who I am and all, you know, the libraries of books that I've read and the symphonies and the songs and the worship and all of that kind of stuff that has made my mind and heart what it is, I receive everything through that filter. And then it goes up into my mind with and creates these ideas. And then these ideas come back through that filter, always that fractal thing you were talking about. But that means that whatever I can offer the world in a creative sense or offer in the sense of loving another person is completely different than anything that you could offer or anything that anybody else could offer. So when we all offer into the world, we are building something bigger and more complete all the time than could ever be if just one person is doing everything the right way. I mean, this is why collectives are so dangerous because there's one guy at the top telling everybody, well, this is how you're all going to function as a collective. But but that's not the way that ant collectives function. Ant collectives function by all the ants, each adapting through their experiences and working together to accomplish things. And to me, that's what we're doing as individuals. We're We're learning and growing and we're receiving God's truth through his word, but it's richer because you and I are talking about it and we each bring our own perspective to it. And then the people who are listening are bringing their own perspective to it. And we're always trying to tie it back to truth, which is why it's so wonderful to have the resource of the Bible and the church fathers and on thinkers throughout the ages so that we're not just completely untethered, right? 
Right. But, um, but it still does mean that somebody can come up with that idea, like the burning bush and the fire, the, the bush that doesn't burn up in the fire are representing Christ's two aspects. Like that's because somebody had a, a original way of thinking about it and could offer that into the body. And then we could all grow from that. Right. It's what popped in my head was a kind of an extreme version of that is like, uh Caiaphas the high priest right mm -hmm. when when they're plotting against Christ it, it it says in the text like you know Caiaphas says something like you people don't know what you're talking about like we need to go ahead and kill this man you know it's better that one man die for the nation than that the whole nation is destroyed or something like that and it even says in the text it's like <laughs> Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but because as high priest, he was prophesying about Christ. And so it's like, even he had no intention of saying anything other than just kind of a practical, like, you know, whatever, this is what we should do. But in his role, without even knowing, he served to speak something that was truer on a level higher than he even could have conceived right and that's i don't know that's just that's very interesting to me I mean, and that could be true of all of our words you know well yeah the the other thing i'm reading in the mornings is this thing that our church gave us that's just called the last words of christ okay and um this morning we're reading this scripture <clears throat> When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one place from top, one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. You know it's coming, right? This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. So in the Psalms, David prophetically wrote that, that they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But these Roman soldiers had no idea that that was written in the Psalms because they weren't readers of the Hebrew scriptures. And yet right. in their individuality, they were living out what had been prophesied and they fulfilled it. And how do we know, but what our individuality is living out hmm. um, things that are fitting into God's perfect vision for how things work out you know if if we are his story if we are his poem his workmanship then every aspect of that work um you know the thing that she says about good and evil in terms of what an artist is doing is that sometimes an artist or a, a writer they have to write about both good and evil in order to make the story work but writing about evil is not evil itself. What's evil in the writing is to write something that is badly done. 
to write something that is not coherent or that doesn't fit with the story or that you're trying to jimmy into place or that is propagandistic. That's where the evil comes in, is in the bad craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. Um, But God's craftsmanship is all good. (laughs) And um, God is completely good. So his craftsmanship, his structure, his storyline, his characters are all coherent and purposeful and living out in freedom. I mean, that's what she says is characters have to have the freedom to live within the structure that's been created by the author. Right. It's all very mysterious. (laughs) I don't think that means we can't rebel. um, Because I think that there are even times when characters rebel. A a writer will find a character going off in some direction that the writer didn't intend in the first place. Yeah. But then what has to happen is that the story has to be rewritten in some way to accommodate that that mm-hmm. new stream, right? And um, I think that's one of the really astonishing things about God is that when I take a wrong path, that's not the end of my story. Mm-hmm. Because he finds a way to maybe put an obstacle in my path that causes me to turn back or maybe teach me something new so that I adjust my own course. Um, Many different ways that he has of bringing me back into the story. Right. So, um, and I think that's the way the universe works. I think that's the way particles work and, even thinking about that's one of the reasons I like thinking about Wolf Stephen Wolfram's um, new kind of physics is that there are times when the paths diverge in this new form of physics, but then they they remerge again, they they merge back again, so that the the storyline is continuous. It doesn't just just doesn't just go out and scatter. It comes back. And it's very complicated, but um, anyway, I think God is just always doing amazing things. It's a good story. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe next time we could um, touch a little bit on chapter seven and eight, because um, I think chapter seven is the one on good and evil. And then eight is the one on Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah might be interesting to look at that. That sounds great. I think I talked more than I wanted to today, and I didn't leave enough space for you. But <laughs> Oh, you're good. I, I, this is great, Ryan. Thank you so much, and uh, have a good week. And yeah, Thank you. We'll thank you. touch base again about when we'll get together again. Okay. Good. Okay. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.